Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This is a partially examined life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 70 is something like, what is human nature? And we read part one of Karl Marx's book, The German Ideology, written in 1846, but unpublished until something like 1932. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. And this is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. Shall we do some ground rules? Sure. Number one, try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy. Number two, no name dropping. Uh, (laughs) Oh, shit. I picked the one that you have to come up with the clever thing. Don't say. Don't say. Just make your point. For example, you don't say, well, you'd only understand if you'd read The Richest Man in Babylon by George S. Clausen. Back to you, Mark. I think that number three is for you, Wes. Uh, what's it's number three? It's fucking number 70. 70. We've had 70 episodes. We've read the rules at least 40 times in those 70 episodes. Wait, what was what number one again? <laughs> process. Try to assume that our audience is dumbasses. Number three is something about rigor. Oh, we will try to be rigorous and exact unless... It's uh, more fun not to. Something like that. There you go. (laughs) I really don't don't know the rules. (laughs) And yet you follow them nonetheless. I do. I'm a stickler for the unwritten rule. It's the knowledge how rather than knowledge that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Praxis. Yes. Why the guy we're reading today is is someone who advocates praxis. Mr. Karl Marx, pretty much if I say anything that is outside the scope of the immediate text that we read here, it's because I listened to some lectures by Ivan Zelenyi, S-Z-E-L-E-N-Y-I from Yale. I'll link folks to that, but he has a course on social theory and about five lectures on Marx in there. And one of his big things to emphasize is the difference between the Marx that people know about which is the later Marx who wrote Das Kapital and was very <laughs> just this adamant revolutionary and really eschewed philosophy altogether. Obviously, he wrote a lot, but he was a practical dude. And the earlier Marx who, well, there's still some of that in there. In fact, the book that we read this time is largely an attack on contemporary German philosophy to say that philosophy itself is just what you've been programmed because of your social class. <laughs> He actually, he failed to get an appointment as a professor. And I think he was like 23 when he Ah. was looking. 
And then he basically became a journalist. So that may be part of his disillusionment with philosophy. But. Yeah, but he started out, and by the time of this book, so he wrote this when he was 26, 27. He was still engaging, at least, with the philosophical establishment, which was Hegel. Yeah. Hegel, and more so the young Hegelians so in the wake of Hegel's death. There are all these people. And of course, we've done some Hegel episodes, and there are so many different directions one can go from Hegel. And Hegel wrote on so many different things and wrote so obscurely that you can come up with just completely contradictory philosophies that both call themselves Hegelian. For our purposes and Marx's purposes, the most important and fashionable idea at the time was that ideas drive history, basically. So we remember from the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel sort of maps out this history of consciousness, you could call it, which in many ways is a history of the spirit of various different epochs. You know, at some point you get this transition, say, from stoicism to skepticism or something like that, you know, unhappy consciousness, all these different forms of collective consciousness that Hegel characterizes. The human beings are human beings of their own times. They're shaped by this form of collective consciousness, and it has its own dynamic. In a way, the history of human beings, in a sense, is a history of thought, because the kinds of great ideas that philosophers have actually filter into the public discourse and social life, and lots is determined by that. And so this is part of what Marx is going to object to. I guess we should also say something about what the young Hegelians were doing with, with Hegel. Yeah, so a lot of this book, which we should say, so the book itself is this giant sprawling two-volume thing that was submitted for publication and I guess rejected. That the publisher said, yes, you know, things have changed and we're not going to publish this. And then they, so they said, it's also a repetitive, irritable, yes. sarcastic rant. So. Right. right. And a lot of it is like there's whole sections, parts that we did not read largely that are ripping on some of these young Hegelians. So Bruno Bauer is one guy he calls Saint Bruno and uh, Max Stirner, Saint Max, he calls throughout here. The book as a whole is written by Marx and Engels, but at least the editor of the Marx collection that I'm reading here, Robert Tucker, I see, opined that this part that we read, which is the part that people generally read of the German ideology, is pretty much all Marx. It's elaborating the notes of this other work called Theses on Feuerbach, who's another one of the young Hegelians that he was writing at the same time, right as they kicked off this collaborative work. We'll refer to the collective Marx and Engels as yeah. just Marx. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> from what I hear, from what the lectures told me, Marx was the genius who came up with the original ideas anyway. Engels was actually kind of a clearer writer, clearer thinker. You know, maybe he was a good editor on, the, on this particular, well, <laughs> a good editor, an editor <laughs> on this particular work that we read. But we, yeah, we don't really have to worry about him. So the young Hegelians, a lot of what they were concerned with were the theological parts of Hegel. That, in fact, this absolute spirit, you're saying the phenomenology is kind of a picture of the evolution of consciousness. Well, the end point, when you take that to the philosophy of history, and we have an episode on that, if you look way back to episode 15, it's sort of the collective understanding of humanity gradually understanding itself. And that actually becomes equivalent to the creation of God, <laughs> that we create God. God is existence itself coming to understand itself so that it's it might start as this blind bunch of forces. But then is there a God? Well, maybe there's a Spinozic God or something to start with or a will in the way that Schopenhauer would talk about it or who knows. But by the end of history, you would have this full-blown personal God 
Yeah. And so that's a crazy ass view. And this, you know, and the state is co-relatively evolving as well. So for Hegel, this sort of history of consciousness of spirit had reached its end point and it reached it in the Prussian state and in <laughs> philosophically it reached it in Hegel and religiously it reached it in Christianity and Jesus. These are all the endpoints of this historical development and, and essentially the perfection of it. So the end of history is reached there. Yeah. Yeah. There's another important point that is going to be a huge issue for Marx with respect to Hegel, and that's that this development of spirit's consciousness or of consciousness, it's a movement towards freedom and the realization of reason in spirit in the world, blah, 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 ultimately is an expression of realization of the freedom that corresponds to this development of consciousness where you come to this realization of self-consciousness. Marx obviously is going to be putting forth the thesis that we're actually moving in the other direction. <laughs> That's a critical element as well. Right. But they both share a conception of freedom that we've talked about in terms of Kant and others before, that freedom is not freedom from. It's not just being left alone. It's yeah. having sort of support in a certain way. So having a supportive society for Marx, it comes down, I think, a lot of this to having productive interactions with others, that they're dealing with you as a whole person and not as an instrument. Yeah, I get that. I'm not saying that they had necessarily radically different ideas of freedom. What I'm saying is that for Hegel, there's been this inexorable unidirectional march towards mm -hmm. freedom. And what Marx is basically saying is, actually, we haven't been moving towards freedom. We've been moving quite away from that with respect to individuals being free to self-determine and self-actualize. But I think he'll see, you know, this progression from early communities to feudalism to capitalism and then to communism. That's a similar sort of progression to the one we see in Hegel. It's just quote unquote material. So mm -hmm. I think with Marx will be sort of embracing Hegel's structure, but rejecting his idealism. And he's pivoting off the young Hegelians who, you know, the young Hegelians came along and rejected or criticized the religious aspect of Hegel. And they were essentially atheists, and they criticized his abstractness and his idealism. And, you know, one of the criticisms of the religion, for instance, is the idea of a incarnation of Jesus as this idea of the spirit being incarnated in one individual. Marx comes along. At a certain point, he was a young Hegelian himself, and then he breaks with him. But for Marx, their criticisms don't really go far enough because they still see religion and ideas as the driving force of history. And they mm -hmm. still see the road to emancipation as paved with the development of new ideas. But for Marx, that development actually comes from what he calls material conditions. So you can't come along and write the Communist Manifesto at the wrong time in history when the forces of production don't line up and when other material conditions don't line up properly. You're not going to produce communism simply through the propagation of ideas. The propagation of ideas is actually secondary to or superstructure to, or you might say epiphenomenal to these material conditions. Yeah, I say we table it, but I'll just say that where Hegel sees a kind of linear progression from a state of freedom only for the few towards freedom for the many or freedom in itself, I think because Marx talks about the revolutionary moment, his progression is not towards, but actually it's almost like you have to go away from it and get to a point. That's kind of what I meant by that is. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, one of the conditions of revolution is that you have this tremendous amount of conflict or tension 
which again, you know, this is reflective of the Hegelian dialectic where you have to produce a contradiction to move on to the next stage. Just one more thing on the young Hegelians. So another way of referring to the movements after Hegel that I was reading about was to break them down into the right Hegelians and the left Hegelians. So the right Hegelians would be following Hegel's conservatism, right? Hegel actually yeah. thought that the end point of this progression of spirit through history is the current Prussian state, which was a constitutional monarchy, and he was politically pretty conservative. That's where he came down at the end of his life. The young Hegelians or left Hegelians, now I don't know if they're called young because they were young or because they are followers of the young Hegel who wrote the phenomenology rather than the old Hegel who wrote the philosophy of right. I'm not clear on that, but in any case, the left Hegelians were politically radical, right, as well as being atheists for the most part. Yet they eventually became radical. I think they started out less radical. Yeah, sure. Interpreting miracles in naturalistic terms, for instance. So some of this was even in Hegel and his own way of modifying theology, which Schleiermacher is a figure that we had an episode on who's very much in this tradition. So Hegel had already broken orthodoxy and already we said he has this very weird notion of God. With that is an emphasis on things like reading the miracles in a naturalistic, metaphorical manner. So, like, one of the biggest young Hegelians was this guy named David Strauss, wrote The Life of Jesus Critically Examined, who was a student of Schleiermacher's. You know, it was caused a huge scandal because he characterized elements in the gospel as mythical in character. And then Bruno Bauer, one of the guys that Marx criticizes, actually is most famous for criticizing Strauss on this. Incidentally, Nietzsche was another guy that criticized Strauss and was encouraged by Bruno Bauer, one of these people that Marx hates. So, I know I'm name dropping like hell, but there was a lot of philosophical concentration going on here. And this all feeds into why Marx thinks that this critique that he's giving in German ideology is necessary because philosophy was a big freaking deal, apparently, in Germany at the time. He says, like, even sort of normal, decent citizens feel a flush of pride at this edifice of German philosophy. So I don't know that much about the history of the time, what was really going, but at least it's certainly described as if there was much more permeation of philosophy into the life of regular citizens than maybe we have today. I don't know. The more that's at stake, apparently, the more nasty you need to be to your <laughs> philosopher. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Who I think he associated with at some point. Right. Just to throw another name from our past into here. So remember, Kierkegaard was another one who, in the wake of this Hegelianism that was dominating the church in Germany and its surrounding area at the time, reacted very violently against that in the opposite direction from Marx, that Kierkegaard was all about this personal authenticity. And that's actually seems to be also what Feuerbach, who Marx talks about quite a bit in this work, Ludwig Feuerbach was another one of these young Hegelians, and Marx was very influenced by him. That's why this thesis on Feuerbach is the work right before this and written contemporaneously with this, who was somebody that had already made this move that Marx is making toward materialism. But he just didn't yep, think that yep. he made the move toward materialism, but didn't make the move all the way toward praxis. I thought maybe a good way to kick this off is actually to read, since this thesis on Feuerbach thing is only 11 theses over uh, just a little over two pages, is to read a couple of the theses because these kind of give in aphoristic form some of the things that are in German ideology. That sound reasonable? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So just the, the actual connection toward Feuerbach, which is, this is the only one that mentions it, spread over thesis five and eight is, Feuerbach, not satisfied with abstract thinking, appears to sensuous contemplation, but he does not conceive sensuous as practical human sensuous activity. Why, yes, Socrates, you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then sort of following up a few theses later, the highest point attained by contemplative materialism, that is, materialism which does not comprehend sensuousness as practical activity, 
is the contemplation of single individuals in civil society. So it's still taking the route that Kierkegaard took or somebody like this took, taking the existentialist route, which almost all these guys following Hegel were existentialists of one sort or other. Marx is in, entirely against that, that you can't actually understand human nature or the human condition or any of that as long as you're absorbed in navel gazing, as long as you're absorbed in making your own individual belief authentic and examining the psychology of the individual, it's a dead end. Yeah. So Feuerbach, he was advocating this materialistic or humanist materialism. Is that what it was called? But he doesn't attempt to derive the course of history from economics, essentially. That's really the complaint. <laughs> so he doesn't get beyond, again, this idea that philosophical and religious ideas are the driving force of history. I don't know enough about Feuerbach to know whether that's true. I'm just trying to set up that there's, even before economics comes in, there's still this mood toward what we might call pragmatism or positivism, depending on what circles you're talking in. So one of these other theses. Yeah, and Feuerbach two. has already made that. Yep. Already made that move. The question whether objective truth can be attributed to human thinking is not a question of theory, but it is a practical question. Man must prove the truth, that is, the reality and power, the this-sidedness of his thinking in practice. The dispute over the reality or non-reality of thinking, which is isolated from practice, is a purely scholastic question. <laughs> All of your griping about individual philosophic theories that are isolated from practice is a waste of freaking time. Yeah. It's just funny that, you know, we were just complaining at the end of the last episode about people who take this attitude. Well, it turns out there's many points of view from which one can criticize philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I really, I thought of Callicles, especially <laughs> at a certain part of this when he really starts to go off on people. Like section two of 1A, production of consciousness. When he's in that tirade, it's worthy of Calicles. And then the last thesis in here I wanted to read, and then I'll be done with this. And I'm, okay, there's two more. <laughs> All right. Number three, the materialist doctrine that men are products of circumstances and upbringing, that therefore changed men are products of other circumstances and changed upbringing, forgets that it is men who change circumstances and that it is essential to educate the educator himself. Hence, this doctrine necessarily arrives at dividing society into two parts, one of which is superior to society. The coincidence of the changing of circumstances and of human activity can be conceived and rationally understood only as a revolutionizing practice. So again, you might recognize we're influenced by our society or something right. like that, but you have to go further than that and actually do a historical analysis that if you're talking about nature versus nurture, you're still dwelling on the individual psychology and you're not dwelling on, well, why is the nurture done that way? Yeah. And you can call yourself a materialist and a positivist and still want to talk about things in terms of cultural influences, for instance, right? How are individuals determined by their cultural influences? But as you're saying, Mark, for Marx, that's not going far enough because those cultural influences, culture and the types of society we have are determined, again, by these, quote unquote, material conditions, including the thing that Marx is most concerned with is how it is we make our living, essentially, what kind of work we do to fulfill our basic needs. And that, according to Marx, will have a very important role in shaping what it is that our culture is, and so what those cultural influences end up being. Yep. And then the very last thesis in here, number 11, is the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. Now, there's a famous quote. Yeah. You know, he could have just said, I'm less interested in being a philosopher now, and I want to be an activist. <laughs> I want to be a community organizer. Which is one of the other reasons I heard, I guess I read in the intro here of why 
when it got rejected for publication the first time, why they didn't sort of keep pushing this. Well, part of it is just that some of this is made up of this historical story of why communism necessarily comes to pass. And he revised that story a number of times before he got to his big work, Das Kapital, which is, you know, the one was actually ready for publication was his big contribution to philosophy. But that's like 20 years later. So that's part of it. But also just because he thought this whole thing was too philosophical. Why am I still doing philosophy after I'm complaining that philosophy is a load of crap? So something about mice at the very beginning. Yes. Okay. We abandoned the manuscript to the gnawing criticism of the mice all the more willingly as we had achieved our main purpose, self-clarification. This is actually in a little introductory paragraph in the Marx Engels ah, yes. reader. Yeah. But it's quoting Marx. We achieved our main purpose, self-clarification. So it wasn't published, but it helped him think through the pointlessness of thinking through. <laughs> yep. Well, for the ideology proper, so there's a preface that's just three paragraphs that I wanted to read a little of just to get a sense of his the fun language used here. Hitherto men have constantly made for themselves false conceptions about themselves, about what they are and what they ought to be. They've arranged their relationship according to their ideas of God, of normal man, etc., the phantoms of their brains have got out of their hands. They, the creators, have bowed down before their creation. Let us liberate them from the chimeras, the ideas, dogmas, imaginary beings under the yoke of which they are pining away. Let us revolt against the rules of thoughts. Let us teach men, says one, to exchange these imaginations for thoughts which correspond to the essence of man, says the second, to take up a critical attitude to them, says the third, to knock them out of their heads, and existing reality will collapse." These innocent and childlike fancies are the kernel of the young Hegelian philosophy, which is not only received by the German public with horror and awe, but is announced by our philosophic heroes with the solemn consciousness of its cataclysmic dangerousness and criminal ruthlessness. The, the, the first volume of the present publication has the aim of uncloaking these sheep who take themselves and are taken for wolves, of showing how their bleeding merely imitates in a philosophic form the conceptions of the German middle class. The boasting of these philosophic commentators only mirrors the wretchedness of the real conditions of Germany. Its aim is to debunk and discredit the philosophic struggle with the shadows of reality, which appeals to the dreamy and muddled German nation. Once upon a time, a valiant fellow had the idea that men were drowned in water only because they were possessed with the idea of gravity. If they were to knock this notion out of their heads, say by stating it to be a superstition, a religious concept, they would be sublimely proof against any danger from water. His whole lifelong he fought against the illusion of gravity, of whose harmful results all statistics brought him new and manifold evidence. This valiant fellow was the type of the new revolutionary philosophers in Germany. And that's where prospective publishers stopped reading the manuscript and <laughs> put it into the, into the pile marked crank. <laughs> But it is fun. Yeah. Just a little side note on style. It's actually a tremendously readable text. There's definitely a lot of quasi-screed content where he goes off on various people or continues in the first section in particular, talking about the young Hegelians. But in terms of laying out the theses and the ideas, it's very clearly written and very sort of, I would say, structurally, it makes a lot of sense. It builds on itself. It's not to be feared, at least the abridged version I have. Well, it's funny that this is a text that's now cited as one of the most important ones for understanding Marx. But the text itself, there's parts in here that it's abridged because the original was too damaged to read. Like, oh, there's supposed to be four more pages here, but uh, we can't read them. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. The full version is, yeah, abridged by necessity. It's like we're reading one of the pre-Socratics. We're reading. <laughs> this is not an extant text. That's right. It's abridged by a uh, material condition. 
Well, like Kierkegaard, Marx and then Marx and Engels working together, he just wrote a lot. And there are about four different unpublished attempts at writing a book from this era. Engels was funding him, right? Didn't Engels own a factory or something? I'm not sure. Marx didn't really have a source of income other than benefactors like Engels, who himself was a factory owner, ironically. <laughs> Which is probably completely wrong, as my <laughs> things usually are. Hmm. Well, shall we get into it? Yeah. Ideology in general, baby. All right. For the listeners, they should know that I think all three of us are using different versions of the text. <laughs> so we'll do our best to stay synced up here. The last section, in the very first couple of pages where he starts off, opposition of the materialist and idealist outlook, he gives a criticism or he sort of describes Hegel, the young Hegelians, and the old Hegelians. And he sums up at the end of it sort of what his concern is. And I'll go ahead and read a quote. It has not occurred to any one of these philosophers to inquire into the connection of German philosophy with German reality, the relation of their criticism to their own material surroundings. And essentially what he's saying is that the exercise of doing history from the idealist perspective, where you create a concept that you call consciousness or man or the one or self-consciousness or substance or the unique and then it becomes a thing. You reify it. And then it gains a sort of more reality than the actual material conditions of human beings has been the great error that all the Hegelians have undertaken. Would you guys agree that that's a fair characterization? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then directly after that, he goes on to talk about this need not for dogma, but for quote unquote, real premises. Yes, who turn out to be the individuals and their activity and the material conditions under which they live. I think I laughed out loud when I read this and I felt like I had yeah. to tell somebody else. This is in the section, First Premises of Materialist Method. It says, the premises from which we begin are not arbitrary ones, not dogmas, but real premises from which abstraction can only be made in the imagination. They are the real individuals, their activity and material conditions under which they live, both those which they find already existing and those produced by their activity. The first premise of all human history is, of course, the existence of living human individuals. Thus, the first fact to be established is the physical organization of these individuals and their consequent relations to the rest of nature. He kind of goes on. The writing of history must always set out from these natural bases and their modification in the course of history through the action of men. So he makes a point about this that there's nothing, at least in his criticism, there's nothing in the Hegelian model that actually requires or assumes the existence of individual living humans, actual individual particular human beings. Its logic doesn't flow from the individuals. It goes in the opposite direction, right? Marx is sort of a bottom-up guy where Hegel is a top-down guy. Right. I actually re-listened to our episode on Hegel and philosophy history just to check about this. And Hegel did think that these movements of spirit took place through the action of actual individuals. So right. when Marx characterizes these Hegelians as talking about spirit as something that is self-conscious, it's an entity, that was not evident in the Hegel that we read from his introduction to philosophy of history. So either that's a mischaracterization by Marx or is something that the followers of Hegel that he's making fun of were saying. Well, you can say even if it's their activity, I mean, 
what Marx is saying here is kind of absurd, right? Individuals are premises in a chain of reasoning. No, they can't be an actual physical thing or a human being cannot be a premise. Sorry, Marx. It's judgments about individuals. that can be a premise. Well, observations. Yeah, but it has to be in the form of a proposition or a judgment. The premise is a proposition or a judgment. A premise can't be something running around in the world. It's a logical entity. No, the premise is the existence of living human individuals. The premise is not the individuals themselves. It's that there exist... Well, first he says they, meaning the premises, are the real individuals. And then you can say the existence. And then you could say, yes, there's a proposition that the existence of individuals is itself a premise. But that's not what he means. If we took there exists individuals as our proposition that doesn't lead anywhere what what we're interested in is actual facts about human physiology about what types of jobs they have what kinds of activities they're engaged in what they're doing for work how they're sustaining themselves all these things have to be articulated as what i'm pointing to is actually very minor i mean i think marx's general point holds which is that you want to focus on these sorts of propositions that I just talked about, these sorts of empirical facts about individuals. What I'm saying is that Marx is so anti-abstraction that he wants to pretend that these sorts of things that he's talking about can avoid abstraction. You can't avoid abstraction. You simply cannot avoid abstraction. It's nice to think of premises as actual human beings and so that you're circumventing all the problems that go into scientific inquiry and abstraction and so on and so forth. But you're not really circumventing that. That's my point. Hmm. Okay. I read that a bit differently because he has a pretty extended discussion later on in the essay about the individual as an individual as opposed to being determined by class or by the guild structure or whatever. And I got the sense that what he was trying to point to here was that the first premise of human history is that there are actual individual human beings that exist and act as opposed to human beings kind of seen as tokens of a type or as instruments being moved by external forces. I think that's right. And I think that larger point still holds. Okay. You could see what I said as a quibble, but really it's more of a matter of pointing out something about Marx's attempt to immunize himself from the sorts of objections that no thinker can really immunize himself from by calling individuals premises. But the larger point still holds, which is that he wants to focus on individuals, not that just their existence, but their properties and activities, what their physiology and what environment they find themselves in. And, and, and again, especially, you know, really what it comes down to is what sorts of jobs they're engaged in, what kind of work that they do to sustain their existence, to meet their initial needs. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com support.